0: I once read about a factory that opened up in a developing country and they needed workers for their factories, so they hired local people and everyone worked for one week and got paid and went away and they didn't show up for work the next week. So the owners of the factory were trying to figure out what was going on. They sent their managers into the village and found out that everyone had far more money than they had ever earned before and they were satisfied. There was no need to go back and make more money and so they were trying to figure out how do we get our workers to come back, and they decided to give them mail-order catalogs. They passed these out to all the people, and it worked. Within a few weeks, their factory was fully staffed again because the catalogs had created a desire in people for things that they would otherwise have been just fine without. We live in a world where our everyday life is barraged with these types of messages. There are marketers whose sole job is to make us want things that if it weren't for their efforts, we may never know that we wanted. Tim Kimmel, founder of Family Matters, writes, quote, keeping the average family unsatisfied is vital to our economic system. In order to lure me to a particular product, an advertiser must create a dissatisfaction for what I have or a nagging desire for what I don't need. I got an email from Verizon last week, and the subject was, if anyone deserves a $400 prepaid Visa card, it's you. (laughs) And these ideas get into our heads. I need this, or I deserve this. And we fall prey to a never-enough mentality, believing that happiness and contentment is just beyond our grasp. The fact is that we in America are so wealthy. Even if you're deep in debt, Most people here this morning own a refrigerator, enjoy indoor plumbing. We have roofs that don't leak continually. We own vehicles, and many of us have a steady income. Our standard of living is so high, as it is for so many people around us, so much so that we start to think that this is normal instead of wealthy. And unwittingly, most of us fall into the trap of pursuing more and more. When John Rockefeller, who is arguably the wealthiest American in all of history, was asked how much money it would take to make him happy, he responded, just a little more. But is there truth in this, that more will make us happier, better people? Actually, there's not. For a long time, studies have shown that wealthy people are more likely than the rest of humanity to cheat, to shoplift, to be adulterers. They are the worst tax evaders. They give proportionally less to charity, which is not surprising since they exhibit considerably less compassion and empathy towards suffering people. They're more likely to cut people off in traffic, and they even are more likely to take candy that's meant for children. (laughs) The problem is that wealthy people don't need people. They rely on their money rather than on their relationships, and they become increasingly isolated and self-centered, believing that their wealth is inherently deserved. Now, these are, of course, gross generalizations, and there are always exceptions, so we would hope that Christ-following wealthy people would be significantly more generous and compassionate than other wealthy people. But we do find that, in general, wealth doesn't make us happier, kinder, or more connected people but rather it produces the opposite effect. So in Deuteronomy 8, God warns the people of what would happen when they would finally live in the promised land. We have a slide here, Jesse, Deuteronomy 8, and I'm going to read a portion of what Leah had already read again. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, Sounds like the land we're living in, doesn't it? Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. God warned the Israelites that once they were satisfied and wealthy, their hearts would become proud and they would forget the Lord and all that he had done for them. He warned that they would start to believe that their prosperity was a result of their own strength and power, failing to acknowledge that even their ability to produce wealth came from God. Is any of this a surprise to you that wealth doesn't bring out the best in us? It might not be. You might be very aware of the dangers of wealth and do your best to avoid being tempted by its allure. But many of us tend to think that we're somehow different, that riches wouldn't corrupt our character, so it's okay for us to want more and continually pursue more. And just like John Rockefeller, we don't want a lot more, we just want a little more, right? I remember reading once about how the native Indonesians used to trap monkeys. So they would find a large coconut, and they would bore a small hole into it, drain the milk, and then put a little stone, a little pebble in the middle of that, and then just leave it there. And inevitably, a monkey would come along and shake the coconut, and it was so, it was so attractive to them to find that something was in there, they would stick their hand in it, and they would grab that stone, and they would hold onto it and they wouldn't let that little stone go, go. And as a result, they've got this heavy coconut, they couldn't, hide, they couldn't climb trees anymore, and they were easily caught. When really their freedom was just about letting go of that stone, and they could pull their hand right out, but they wouldn't do it. And the fact is that wealth is like a spiritual trap for us. We're naturally attracted to it, and we live in a culture that constantly tells us we need it, and we even deserve it. But instead of making us happier, better, kinder people, people, wealth often leads to spiritual death, to separation from other people and separation from God. First Timothy 6.10 says, "'For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil.'" So I wanna be careful here. We're not saying that money, that having money makes you a bad person. There are those who have a lot of money and are still generous, connected, compassionate people. The problem is not having wealth per se, but loving wealth and longing for wealth and putting our identity and security in it. Those are the things that work against us. That's when we're holding onto this little stupid stone for dear life, somehow believing that it holds the key to our happiness, when we'll actually find freedom if we're just willing to let it go. So what's the antidote to the self-centered pursuit of wealth? We'll talk about two things this morning that Scripture encourages, namely, generosity that flows from trusting God's provision, and gratitude for that provision. And since this is the week of Thanksgiving, we're gonna spend some time focusing on specific things that we can incorporate into our daily lives to develop a sense of gratitude. So that's the bulletin insert, and I'll let you know in a few minutes when it's time to pull that out. So again, the antidote to our tendency toward the self-centered pursuit of wealth, first of all, gratitude. First Timothy 6, 17 through 19. I think we've got a slide for that as well. It says, command those who are rich in this present world. So again, that's us. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Other versions say, put your trust in God. Though we might say that we trust God, that our hope is in God, but do our behaviors back up our words? If we truly trust God to meet our needs, we should be freed up to be generous givers. Our lives should be characterized by generosity and a willingness to share all we have with those in need. Many years ago, Byron and I were convicted that if the poorest of Israelites were instructed to give a 10% tithe, then shouldn't we, as some of the wealthiest people on earth, be giving even more? And so we decided to increase our giving by 1% each year, praying and relying on the Lord to make that possible. And I remember we were about five years into this situation and our van broke down and we really didn't have the money for a car payment or to buy a new car. And I was complaining to a close friend about our situation, and she knew our money decisions and said, well, you really could just go back to a 10% tithe, and that would free up money for you to get a, make a car payment, right? And she was right. So I went back and talked to Byron about it, and we took time to pray about it. And we realized pretty quickly that we loved our giving, and we didn't want to change it. We decided we'd rather drive a car that really wasn't very nice than maybe a nicer car, just so that we would be able to continue giving our money to people in need, to our church, to ministries that were doing amazing work in caring for others and in making their lives better and introducing them to Jesus. So we had become cheerful givers. When we started doing it, we really expected that it would just all be about sacrifice and that in the end we would have had less, but instead we had far more. And we had what we really needed, we had developed contentment, gratitude for God's provision, and delight in being able to help others. And since we regularly talked about our money decision with our girls, even they had developed hearts of gratitude and generosity and contentment with what they had. Though every year when we set up our budget and we increase our giving, it's a challenge all the time. And we wonder, should we we keep doing this? How is it going to work this year? And yet, year after year, we've watched God provide for our needs. So it's built our trust, and it's built our joy. And again, our personal experience is backed by science. Pastor Andrew talked last week about studies that have shown that when we give, we feel more alive, our stress levels come down, we feel more connected to others. But long before we knew the science behind gratitude, God was telling us, through Scripture, and through His example of lavish generosity to us, that giving and generosity are good for us. God is our creator. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And when he tells us what's good for us, we need to trust him. What's the second antidote to this pursuit of wealth? It's developing a spirit of gratitude, recognizing God is the giver of all good things. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see the steady undercurrent of gratitude that runs through everything we're to do? And in Philippians 4, Paul says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So yes, go to God and ask him for what you need, but do it with a spirit of thanksgiving. And in 1 Thessalonians, we're told to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again and again, we're told to give thanks to God. So how can we develop this steady undercurrent of gratitude? Is it really possible to always give thanks to God the Father for everything? How can we become people whose lives are characterized by gratitude, contentment, and generosity? In the book of Philippians, Paul also said that he'd learned how to be content. So this is good news for us because this is something through the help and the power of the Holy Spirit we can learn because really gratitude is about perspective. Is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? Both are true. And we can focus, we can choose to focus on what we don't have, which leads so often to greed and envy and ingratitude and discontentment. Or we can choose to focus on what we do have, which leads to gratitude contentment, and joy. We'll go over a number of practical steps to make trust, gratitude, and generosity a reality in our lives. Because even though this is a bit counterintuitive, behavior informs our beliefs. So essentially, if we practice grateful behaviors, we're likely to become grateful people. So let's get out your bulletin inserts and we'll go over this together. And just a disclaimer, there's no way that any of us are going to do everything on this list but I would invite you to pick just one thing, maybe two, that you don't currently do and commit to making it a habit beginning today. So these are in no particular order. But number one, count your blessings. Literally, use a gratitude journal. So these are all the rage these days, but for really good reasons. They help us to focus on the things that we have that we might otherwise miss. So each evening, write down three things that you're grateful for and why. For the past few years, my sisters and parents and I have done what we call our grats. It's an email that somebody starts in the evening, and we do exactly this. But instead of a journal, we do it in email. So one person sends an email and says, these are the three things I'm grateful for today and why. And everybody tags on. So it's been a beautiful way for us to see all the good in our lives and also to keep us connected with each other. So see if you can find a friend or a relative that you can do something like this with. Number two. Set a gratitude alarm. Set an alarm for a few random times during the day, and when it goes off, just take one minute to recognize the blessings that you're currently experiencing and thank God for them. So if you're drinking a glass of water, thank God for good, clean drinking water. If you're having lunch with a friend, you could thank God for that friendship, for the money to go out for lunch, for fresh, tasty food to eat, for a healthy digestive system. Number three, Christmas gifts for others. Coming into the Christmas season, one idea might to be spend to, One idea might to be might be to agree to spend less on each other and more on others. So, if you have children, you can choose a um, from an, an angel tree display. You can choose a child and go shopping together for the gifts for that child. World Vision, Mennonite Central Committee, and International Justice Mission, and even a few other great nonprofits often produce Christmas gift catalogs. So you can let your child choose what gifts your family can give to others in need, and it lets your your children experience the joy that comes from giving to others. Skylar, when she was young, had an eye condition, and so she chose to provide eye surgery for somebody who needed it. Madison supported a health clinic, And even when Brayden got older, she saved her own money to buy a milk cow for a family because she knew what a difference this would make in somebody else's life. Our children took just as much delight in giving these gifts to others as they did in receiving their own gifts for Christmas, maybe even more. Number four, take a holiday from consumerism. So pay attention to what creates that constant desire for more in your life. Figure out what it is, and then be really intentional about limiting your exposure. For me, it was catalogs. I realized that as as I would look through catalogs, I would just have this this nagging desire for more. I want that. If only I could have that. And so I spent about a month, every catalog that came into my house, I'd call the phone number on the back and say, discontinue my catalogs. I don't have them, them barraging me anymore. So during this break, try to avoid advertising, trips to the mall, looking through catalogs, watching home improvement shows, and the like. It can be both countercultural and freeing for you. Number five, volunteer. Americans who describe themselves as very happy volunteer an average of about six hours a month. Those who are unhappy, only about half an hour. Studies show that volunteering leads to empathy and connection. Number six, define enough. Have you noticed that when someone gets a pay increase and goes from, say, a salary of $50,000 a year to $60,000, within a few months, they often don't know where that additional income went? It's no secret that our needs seem to increase as our salaries increase. So defining enough is essentially where you decide what you need to live on, and you give the rest away. And it might seem incredibly countercultural, even downright crazy, But Jesus told us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So if our treasure is in our material possessions, that's where our heart will be. But if we prioritize God's kingdom and caring for the needs of others, that's where our heart will be. Defining enough helps us develop a kingdom-centered, eternal perspective. Number seven, intentional thanksgiving. And I wrote down the name of a Thanksgiving blog on your insert. Um, that you can read and find out more about this. So you can make this a Thanksgiving tradition. At some point during the week of Thanksgiving, set aside an hour or two, a good chunk of time for intentional gratitude. Take your journal and go someplace where you'll be undisturbed by other people. And you can ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind God's blessings that you've experienced that past year. And as something comes up, write it down in the form of, Lord, thank you for you may be amazed at what comes up. And once you're finished, you're likely to have a heart overflowing with gratitude. Mark Roberts writes, Gratitude is a kind of slowing down. It's attending to things rather than simply consuming them. Gratitude heightens our awareness of good things and enables us, in a way, to enjoy them all over again. Though no wonder it contributes to our experience of joy and happiness. It's savoring rather than consuming. So especially during this Thanksgiving weekend, make a habit of naming your blessings, savoring them, and thanking God for them. Number eight, focus on spiritual blessings. One idea is to memorize passages of scriptures that will bring to mind what God has already given us in Christ. Epi read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and it's an amazing passage that just goes on and on about one blessing after another that we have right now in Jesus Christ. When our family spent time in Africa, we saw people who were so focused on their spiritual blessings, and I wondered if it it was because they didn't have the material resources to get distracted by, and so they could recognize what was even more important. They recognized God as the giver of all good things, and it gave them great joy and was reflected in their never-ending worship services. The psalmist, when focused on spiritual blessings, especially God's presence with him, said, my cup runneth over. Not even a cup half full, but a cup running over with blessings from God. And in spiritual references to thanksgiving in scripture, we're often encouraged to sing and make music or to sing with gratitude in our hearts. Worship songs focus on God as the object of our adoration, and on the rich spiritual blessings that he continually bestows on us. They counter all those cultural lies we hear. So don't just sing on Sunday mornings, but listen to worship music. Sing worship music all week long. Number nine, increase your giving. Don't fall into that trap of waiting until you have more money to give it away, because it won't happen. Remember that giving demonstrates trust that God is your provider. So if you haven't chosen to place your trust in God, then those commands to give are just cumbersome and irritating. They're rules to follow. But if you say you trust God, then giving your money away is a wonderful expression of that trust. Again, God created us and knows us intimately. He encourages us to give because he knows that it leads to abundant life, to the life that is truly life. It's in loving and caring for others that our own needs are met. God tells us to be generous, willing to share, to tithe and give offerings, to take care of the poor and those in need. So let's make a habit of giving generously, with delight, and with thanksgiving for all we have. And if you don't currently tithe, I'd really encourage you to. Start small if you need to, and make a commitment to gradually increase your giving. You really will be amazed at how God uses baby steps of trust and obedience To show us his goodness. And number 10. Write a monthly gratitude letter. I actually got one of these recently from a person. For something I had done about 8 years ago. And it made my day. But you can write a thank you letter to someone. Expressing your enjoyment. And appreciation for their impact on your life. And again it will make their day. But the side benefit is that it also increases your awareness. And appreciation for how others benefit you. So any of these practices are a good place to start. I'd really encourage you to pick one, two at the most. If you pick more, you probably won't do any of them. Um, But again, start with something you currently don't do and try to make it a regular practice. And so importantly, pray that the Holy Spirit will use your commitment to these practices of gratitude to develop a true sense of thanksgiving deep within your spirit. The practices aren't an end in themselves, but rather they're simply a means by which the Holy Spirit can do good work in our hearts. So we find that thankfulness and gratitude lead to health, contentment, connection, and even happiness. And we've gone over lots of ideas for how to develop this as a regular discipline that will shape and form our lives. But the reality is that true joy comes when we recognize and give thanks for God's greatest gift, for Jesus Christ. Epi read this morning about the wise men following the star to the dwelling place of the Christ child. The text says they were filled with joy at the discovery of the promised king, the long-awaited savior. And the wise men responded with worship as they bowed down before the Christ child, and with generosity as they gave lavish gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In addition to being Thanksgiving weekend, today also marks the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is that church season leading up to Christmas, so we look back to remember and give thanks for God's precious gift to us in the birth of Jesus. And because we've seen God's faithfulness in history and in our own lives, Advent is also the time where we look forward with hope to the promised second coming, when Jesus will come again to make all things new. We are so blessed. Like the psalmist wrote, our cup runneth over pray with me. Oh, gracious God, thank you for all the good gifts you shower upon us. Thank you for life and breath. Thank you for love and laughter. Thank you for our material blessings, for our privileges and opportunities, for freedom, for our ability to produce wealth for the land we live on. Thank you for good work and good rest Thank you for family and friends, for those who help us, and for those who were able to help. Thank you for beauty and song, for truth and purpose. And most of all, Lord God, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ to our broken world, for your passionate, merciful love for us, and for the promise that Jesus will come again. May our lives be characterized by trust in you and overflowing gratitude, generosity, and joy for our good and for your glory. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen.